When Jesus delivered his great commission, he called upon his followers to be his witnesses. This command of Jesus caused the gospel to spread like wildfire, first to Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Today on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll invites us to relive this monumental moment in Christian history. And in doing so, we'll attempt to see ourselves in the plan. Yes, although we're 2,000 years removed, each of us plays a significant role in the Great Commission. Chuck titled today's message, Challenged by Jesus on the Mountain. Travel back with me to Matthew chapter 28. Let's start here. We've been with Jesus as he has gone through the cross, through the tomb, and now before his disciples. And now we come to the mountain. The mountain. Verse 16, chapter 28, the 11 disciples, Judas has now hanged himself. He's gone. The 11 have now gathered in Galilee to the mountain which Jesus has designated. The ascension is, a, is about to happen. Forty days since his resurrection. And now he is almost gone. And he pulls them to this mountainside and he talks to them about what he considered of most importance once he was gone. And from this, I would like to share four observations regarding the Great Commission. First is this. Jesus talked to very ordinary people who knew him personally. That's the first thing I observe. These are not strangers. These are close companions. None of them are unbelievers. They're all followers. They're just folks, just like us. Let's start there. The Great Commission is about folks like us. Second, Jesus presented a game plan clearly and simply. Jesus presented a game plan clearly and simply. Verse 19, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, verse 20, teaching them. Pretty simple, isn't it? That is the objective. Make disciples. It's the game plan that's not supposed to stop. Every generation, every culture, every geography, every continent, every island, that's on his heart. All of them, even the ones that you wouldn't choose to go to, go there, which as we will see is why he mentions Samaria. Okay? He talked to ordinary people, and he presented a game plan that was clear and simple. Here's a third observation. <laughs> Jesus was intense about the mission, but relaxed about the method. He was intense about the mission. Make disciples. It's an imperative. It's a present imperative. Keep on doing this. When you do it once, do it again. When you do it again, do it as a habit. When you do it as a habit, make it a lifestyle. Keep on making disciples. He's intense. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't even talk about the methods. You know why? Because they vary. 
And there are so many of them. There are so many ways of getting the word out. I've made a note of several. Evangelistic dinners, couples gatherings, singles meetings, home Bible studies, radio and television ministries, businessmen's and women's meetings, men's gatherings, women's gatherings, retreats, couples clubs, mayor's prayer breakfast, president's prayer breakfasts, Christian movies, videos, internet, camps, conferences, retreats, seminars, Christian athletic gatherings, music ministries, the arts and crafts, neighborhood teas, ministries to various specialized careers, medical career, legal career, financial career, business career, airline career, and a dozens and dozens of others, high school, college, campus outreaches, children's ministries, and people who are not married, people who are married, people who are senior, people who are just getting underway, and on and on and on the list goes ad infinitum. You say, well, my goodness, all I got to do is work up a game plan and get at it all the same. Wait, wait a minute. I said they're varied. How you reach a family torn by grief is one way, and how you reach a family that's just had a wonderful promotion and are now buying a new home and moving into a whole new life, that's another way. How to reach a person who has gone through a divorce is one method. How to reach a person who is delighted in marriage, there are three of them on earth today, who is delighted in marriage and moving on in life. Those with children, those without children. Those who are engaged in church, those who are not involved in church, those who are moral, those who are immoral. You reach them all in different capacities. Those in construction work, those who are drawn by the arts and and the beauty of our times. Uh, it's, It's limitless. He doesn't care what method you use, just so it glorifies God and gets the job done. So don't hide behind... I don't have the training, or I'm not the right person. Somebody can hear the gospel from you better than anyone else on this earth. Listen to me when I tell you that. You would be far more effective than I would be because they're your friend, not mine. They're in your sphere of involvement, not mine. I've left out a very important group, the upper crust, the highly educated Who reaches the up and outer? While all the evangelicals, it seems, are thinking, who needs that group? We've got a large segment that goes unreached. As one of them said to me not long ago, this is the loneliest world people could even imagine. Who cares about them? How do you reach them? These principles are just as uh, simple as they can be. Jesus talked to very ordinary people. He presented a game plan clearly and simply. He was intense about a mission. By the way, don't miss the teaching part of it. A church that is not engaged in a consistent teaching ministry is not engaged in the Great Commission. A church that does not encourage going is not engaged in the Great Commission. This is all part of the plan, but those are all subordinate to the making of disciples. Here's a fourth. Jesus' commission required action. You knew I'd get there, didn't you? It required action. He says, going, make disciples. Teaching them, baptizing them. He gave them a task. Look at Acts chapter 1. 
Acts 1 verse 8. He promised them power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and indeed he has come. He's told them, you will be my witnesses. That's easy, isn't it? What's a witness? Someone who tells somebody else what happened, what he saw, or what he heard, or what he read. A witness is a person who tells the truth about what has happened in his own life. And you are to be my witnesses, and it is an engaging lifestyle. David Livingston, when asked what had sustained him in all the perils of his years in Africa, turned in his Bible and quoted the Great Commission. When his beloved wife died in Africa, he helped prepare her body for burial. When she had no coffin, his hands made the coffin in which she was buried. When at the gravesite she was in need of someone lowering that coffin into the hole, he was there to lower her into the ground. When the task was completed, through tears, he helped cover the casket with dirt. And then he opened his Bible and read from the text of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, and he said, I quote, Jesus Christ is too much of a gentleman not to keep his word. Let us get on with the task. Wow, that's my kind of man. Of course he was in grief. Of course he was shattered. But give up? Sidelined? Finished? Let us get on with the task. Intense about the mission because it was an action that needed to be carried out. After all, if you don't reach the ones in your sphere of influence, who will? That's why we've come to know Christ, is to make him known. Stop and think how much in life is like that. When you buy a car, you drive it. You don't have car study. I've never heard a Friday night car study where everybody gets a copy of the handbook that they give you with your new car. And we all sit in it. We all feel it out. We all analyze the leather and the seats and how fast it will go. And, and we have a great time for the next two years studying the car. You say, Swindoll, you're losing it. I'm not. People who do that are. The salesman said, why aren't you going to drive it? Well, I really want to analyze it. I, I feel the Lord would have us start a ministry with cars in our area. And when you get ski equipment, you ski. When you purchase a good education at some school, you begin a career. When you purchase a home, you live in it. When you fix a meal, you eat it. When you buy a garment, you wear it. When you build a swimming pool, you swim in it. When you choose a book off the shelf, you read it. Why have you received Christ if not to share him? That is the great commission. And you begin where you are, verse 8, in Jerusalem. Where's that? That's where you live. Now, to them, it was Jerusalem. That's, the, that's home base. For you, it's Dallas or maybe Irving or maybe Frisco. For you, it may be San Diego or or, or it may be Denver, or it may be Miami, or you may be from some other city. Start there. Just start there. Right there. Right there at your school. Right there at your office. Right there at your club. Right there in your involvement and your work. That's, that's your Jerusalem. And then when that takes shape, you'll find you, you're not contained to that. Then you go to Judea. That's, that's, the, that's the 
area around it. For those days, it was called a province. Our day, it's called a county. You reach the county. You go to the state. And don't forget Samaria. Samaria. If you're in Houston, that's the ward. If you're in Dallas, that's West Dallas. If you're in the social world, that's the penitentiary. If you're in a world of prejudice, that's the other race. That's Samaria. If you're in Los Angeles, that's East Los Angeles. Every city has its area. Chicago is South Side. That's Samaria. It's wonderful what happens when you go where you wouldn't choose to go and how God uses you there. Our little tape ministry out of Insight for Living has found a home in many a place that I wouldn't normally go. One of the more interesting letters came from a man who was in solitary confinement at San Quentin. He said, we're given a bed, we're given a toilet, we're given a light bulb, we're given a chair and a tape recorder thanks to the chaplain and your tapes. And I'm stuck here listening to you (laughs) all day long. And I've come to know Jesus. Isn't that great? I would never, well, I would hope I would never be there, but who knows? I mean, I'd rather have a tape there than be there personally witnessing to one or the other. Unless God called me to do that, and then that's where I'd be. What's your Samaria? In the days of uh, the first century, Samaria was the hated spot. True Jews didn't even go through Samaria. If they left Judea to go to Galilee, Samaria was along the journey. They went around Samaria. Do you know that? Don't even get the dust on your sandals. Samaritans. It's like going from Texas to Kansas around Oklahoma. (laughs) I gave that illustration one time, and some friends from Oklahoma came up and said, there ain't no Samaritans in Oklahoma. I want you to know that. (laughs) Any way you want to see it, go to the area you wouldn't normally choose. Go there, too. If you don't go, pay that someone else can go. Make sure you're engaged in something to get the message there. Or you're not involved in the Great Commission. It's the whole world. We started with a legend I end with a story. On a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one rugged boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching in those dangerous waters for the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave, small band of men who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time and energy and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station that was once obscure and crude, virtually insignificant, now began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that the hut 
was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Therefore, emergency cots were replaced with lovely, soft, comfortable furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment and systems and furniture and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives slowly began to shift. It was now used as a sort of, well, clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives and feeding the hungry and strengthening the fearful and calming the disturbed, well, these rarely occurred by now. Fewer and fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professionals, professional lifeboat crews to get the work, lifeboat crews to get the work done. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft indirect lighting which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off that coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned, sick people. They were dirty. Some were terribly ill and lonely. Others were black and of other races. And they were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly got messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside and away from the club so victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up, please, before coming inside the clubhouse. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether and place all involvements with shipwreck victims somewhere else. It's too unpleasant, they said. It's a, it's a hindrance to our social life. It's opening doors to folks who are, well, not our kind. Well, as you would expect, some, some still insisted upon saving lives, that this was their primary objective, that their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help, regardless of the club's beauty or size or decorations. Well, they were voted down. And they were told if they still wanted to be involved in that kind of thing, uh, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And it's exactly what they did. As years passed, new life-saving stations experienced the same old changes. It evolved into just another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the coast today, well, you'll find a large number of exclusive and impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all interest and involvement in the original objective of saving lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, understand, but now most of the victims are not saved every day at, at sea. 
they perish. And so few seem to care. When Cynthia and I were finishing um, a little vacation time with friends uh, up in the Nova Scotia area, it was our privilege to visit um, a rugged gravesite dedicated row after row to the Titanic victims. A very moving experience. The old gray slate stones now beginning to be worn by weather and time. But if you like gravestones like I do, you take the time to kneel down and read some of them. They're sort of the last message of the one who died by one who knew him or her. I'll never forget the one who read, gives his name and gives his age, 26, and it says, he died as all Englishmen should die, courageously. What's your gravestone going to read? Ever thought about that? What will they say when you're taken? I can assure you, if you are fully and wholeheartedly committed to the Great Commission, (laughs) they will stand in line, stand in line to have a chance to tell the world they have you to thank for eternal life. It takes courage to save lives. But that's the way all great Christians ought to die. (laughs) courageously. Let's bow our heads, please. Sobering message, I know. I'm as convicted as you are. I would love to think that I'm a model of these things that I've preached. I am not. I fight the same selfish battles you fight. I want my own time, my own privacy, my own agenda. I don't want to be interrupted. I, I don't want people to get in the way of what I consider the reason that I'm here, when will we realize that people need the Lord? And who knows if they don't hear it from us? Well, there may be someone else, but there may not. Every day is so unpredictable. Wouldn't this be a great day to commit ourselves to what Jesus called his commission, the Great Commission. And if not the driving force of every day of our lives, at least a pulsating theme of times of leisure when we have an opportunity or when we sense this is the right moment. This person needs the Lord, and I, I want to love him into the family of God. The Holy Spirit has been given as power, and the, the, the dynamic, the dunamis power that frees our lips and, and impels our wills to open our mouths and to reach out to others. Lord, we uh, recommit ourselves to this mission that was Your son was so intense about it, he saved it for the last, and he left it with us. Help us in all of our involvements and busyness and priorities and workload and responsibilities. 
Help us, God, help us to make room for the lost as someone once made room for us. Help us, Lord, to live and die courageously in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Everybody said, Amen. You're listening to Insight for Living and the Bible teaching of Chuck Swindoll. He titled today's message, Challenged by Jesus on the Mountain. This is number 19 in a 20-part biography on the life of Jesus called Jesus, the Greatest Life of All. To learn more about this ministry, visit us online at insightworld.org. Here at Insight for Living, we believe sometimes your best learning occurs apart from this program when you're reading God's Word on your own. Did you know that Chuck wrote a study Bible that's thoughtfully designed to guide your personal quiet times? It's called the Swindoll Study Bible, and it represents decades of personal research, all condensed into one book. In classic Swindoll fashion, you'll find the Swindoll Study Bible to be practical, easy to navigate, and filled with resources that enhance your interpretation of God's Word. To purchase your copy of the Swindoll Study Bible, go to insight.org store, or call us. If you're listening in the United States, call 800-772-8888. This daily program is made possible through voluntary donations from grateful listeners like you. If God is prompting you to support this ministry, you can give online at insight.org donate. Or to simplify the process and automate your monthly gifts, we invite you to become a monthly companion. You can do that right now by calling us. If you're listening in the U.S., call 800-772-8888 or go online to insight.org slash monthly companion. What's coming next in God's timeline for the future? Chuck Swindoll presents biblical details on the second coming of Christ on the next Insight for Living. The preceding message, Challenged by Jesus on the Mountain, was copyrighted in 1999, 2000, and 2008, and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2008 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide. Duplication of copyrighted material for commercial use is strictly prohibited.